Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. Today's discussion will focus on skin-to-skin care in the premature and very premature infants in the neonatal intensive care unit. Dr. Kat Coglin is an attending neonatologist at Sharp Mary Birch Hospital for Women and Newborns in San Diego, and she is the Director of Quality Improvement for her practice, San Diego Neonatology Incorporated. She was fortunate to receive formal QI training during her fellowship at CHOP and has since then led multiple quality improvement initiatives. She is her hospital's physician lead for the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative and works on practice standardization as a board member for the California Association of Neonatologists. Over the past three years, she has done extensive QI work on improving skin-to-skin care in preterm infants, and more recently has expanded this work to positive parental touch, reducing painful procedures, and improving family-centered care. And we are so fortunate on the podcast today to have Dr. Coglin as our guest. Are you okay with me calling you, Kat? Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us all the way out there in San Diego, California. Appreciate you spending some time with your with your friends in Tennessee today. So, hey, tell us a little bit about your career as a neonatologist. What got you interested in neonatology and then specifically this interest in quality improvement? So I, I went to medical school in New York City at Columbia and, you know, actually thought I would maybe go into OBGYN and like many of us was immediately drawn to the baby and loved to see how the baby did. And so that kind of led to my interest in neonatology. And in my residency, I also thought I would maybe be interested in other things, but just kept coming back. There was really nothing that came close to as interesting and exciting and fulfilling. So so I did a lot of NICU and residency. I did my residency and fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And and so that's kind of the story of becoming a neonatologist. And, and then the, the QI piece, you know, I didn't know much about quality improvement at all, even as a resident. I feel like when I was a resident, it had just started to become something people were talking about incorporating into curriculums. And so I wasn't taught much at that phase, but it was definitely really important at CHOP. There was a, a growing quality infrastructure with a lot of physicians and leadership. And as a result, there were some awesome mentors for me in fellowship that exposed me to a lot of different facets of QI and ultimately the ability to do some advanced training in QI that is, I think as many of us also know, it's hard to find the time and the resources to really get good QI teaching. And so I really credit that to my fellowship. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is kind of like what makes me tick. I 
I'm not a grant writer. I've never been someone who really was thrilled or excited about the idea of, of writing grants and doing, you know, basic science research or anything like that. I really enjoyed solving problems and I felt like it was something I could, I could do. And I liked the kind of real time feedback from that. And I realized that QI was such a great fit to still kind of pursue things in an academic way, but get to be a problem solver, get to work with teams, get to know the people on your unit and, and get really immediate feedback for all the work you're putting into things. Yeah, boy, I absolutely love that. QI is, is solving problems and getting really to, to use your people skills and work with teams and, and uh, figure out what we can do to help make the babies better. And that's you and I met at Pediatric Academic Societies. I think it was last year through a, through a mutual friend and a colleague that we both both have done some work with over the years. A person you work with on a daily basis, and I get to work with occasionally. And that's a Newt Katheria. We've also had him on this podcast to pick his brain about some things. And when I met you, you had this like awesome poster about skin to skin care and some things that you have specifically done in your practice. And that's really piqued my interest because at that point we had some things with TIPQC. We were starting to mull around like some projects that, that are now starting up and, and having this opportunity to sit down with you and get you to explain to our audience the importance of skin to skin care and how you have been able to bring this into your neonatal intensive care unit. Tell us this story. First off, let's just start with skin to skin care. Explain that to everybody, what, what that is and the importance sure. of that. So, so that is, you know, a newborn being directly their skin, their body on a parent or family member or caregiver's skin, usually their chest, and just spending time there in a quiet and relaxed state. What right. a novel idea. <laughs> Uh, right? Like cuddling, bonding, uh, you know, the basic, the basic human interaction that we all can relate to. So, um, so, and it's, it's being there a lot, not just for 20 minutes and not just because it's a nice thing to do or a sweet thing to do or something that the parents want to do, but because it's really, really good for the baby and it's good for the family unit for the parents. And so, I mean, I could like, I could go on and on forever. So do stop me if it seems like that's happening. No, I want you yeah. to go on and on um, forever. That's why, I've, that's why I've asked you to, to so, be here today. People need to hear this. This yeah, is so important. So, uh, so I personally really feel like skin to skin is one of the most powerful therapies or interventions we have in neonatology. So and I'll tell you why. So first of all, it's something that we we have complete control over facilitating, right? It's it's not, there's so many things out of our control, especially with very sick babies, but this is something that we can choose to make happen. And there's not just one benefit, there's so many. So, so babies who do skin to skin consistently grow better, like, you know, 15 grams per day is what some of the literature quotes, which if you're looking at a baby who's in the NICU for two months, that's a lot of additional weight gain. And we know that growth also, you know, relates to our long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. So that's a big one. It reduces late onset infection. And there's actually just recently been more data coming out on that. I'm really curious to see if that gets studied more, if it has something to do with the development of the baby's microbiome and what they're getting from the parent that they're doing skin to skin with. 
There is also more and more data coming out on some of the like things like cognition and like the kind of more subtle developmental things between six and 12 months of life. Babies, when they're being held, have more vital sign stability, which is something that's a little counterintuitive. We, you know, we all worry a lot about a baby having more ABD events, for example, or getting cold, but the literature really doesn't show that. And we haven't seen that either. They actually are more stable and more regulated, again, because they're comfortable. So where they're supposed to be, you know, it's been described to reduce pain. There are places that, you know, have babies being held well, procedures are being done. And, and then the effect on the parents is also really, really well studied. And there's, there's just really powerful stuff out there on what it does for families. So it reduces stress, it reduces anxiety, it helps parents bond to their baby, helps parents feel more comfortable being around their preterm baby, putting their hands on their preterm baby. It really gives parents the opportunity to be a parent. And we, we all know that like one of the hardest things in the field is that these parents are robbed of that experience they were hoping for when their baby's born early. They don't get to hold their baby necessarily right away and then, you know, take them home when they get discharged two days later. And they don't, you know, there's this loss of control that I can't even fathom how challenging that is. And so by, you know, making skin to skin an expectation and, and letting these families know that it's something only they can do and that it really helps their baby and their family, I think helps, helps them be the parent and feel like the parent. And that again, like long-term affects the mental health of those parents and that family going forward. And what we want, right. We all like get out of bed every day because we want to, you know, we want to take care of a baby in such a, such a way that they go home to thrive for the next, you know, several decades. We want that family to go home and thrive for the next, you know, many, many years. And this is one of the ways we can do that. And it's something we can, we can make happen, which is really cool. So tell us specifically about how this started at Sharp Mary Birch. So what were you seeing at your hospital? And then what sparked this project as a, as an idea to do and pursue? So it's, there were a couple of, a couple of things. So we had a few nurses. We have a kind of separately a developmental care committee, and there were a couple of nurses who were obviously amazing. And they had just been sort of on the side on their own time doing spot audits on this. They just look at some of the sicker babies and keep track every couple of months, like those babies, how many days old were they when they first got held? And so we, we took a look at it. It was like 14 days at least. So two weeks, three weeks was the first time these babies were really being held by their parents, which was pretty shocking and, uh, you know, disappointing to realize. And, and so we were pretty motivated, like we need to do better than that. We can definitely do better than that. And, and then, the, you know, I have a lot of stories from parents over the last several years about skin to skin, but there was a set of twins that were on my service and the dad was, he was really nice, but he was a tough guy. He was a palm crit care attending. And so he 
really took the details seriously. He knew, you know, he knew the lingo. He wanted to know the numbers. He wanted to know what the next steps were. And, and so, you know, those were usually what our interactions were like. And, you know, we talked, we talked a lot of shop almost about the babies because of his profession. And, and the first day he was able to hold them, he told me dead serious, totally genuine. It was the best moment of my life. It was like there was sunshine exploding from my heart. And it was, you know, it's funny to think back on it now, but like he meant like the most powerful thing to him and, and we can make that happen, you know? So those moments are pretty awesome. And those are the moments too, that, you know, I think if there are parents listening, you, you know, this far better than I do, but there are, there are highs and lows in the NICU stay that just like are seared into your memory. I wish they were all highs, but I know there's a lot of lows too, but like, those, those, you carry those with you for the rest of your life. And so as much as we can be a part in making those positive ones, I think we, we totally should, because we know there are those negative ones too. So imagine that there's people listening to this, healthcare professionals that are like, you know, she said 14 days until they, they first held a baby. You know, that's sort of normal in my NICU. I mean, a 24 weeker who's real sick, who's on a jet ventilator, who's on blood pressure medications and has a central line. I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? We, we've got to wait till 14 days till that baby's stable enough for the, for the parents to hold. Explain that thinking. Is that, is that the way we should be thinking or should we be thinking differently? So I think we should be thinking differently. And I know that there are a lot of places that still have policies kind of like that. And, you know, we too, we sometimes have babies that are just too sick and it doesn't happen early for every single baby, but we have set up a system where if it is possible to get done, it gets done and things don't just kind of get, nobody kicks the can. It doesn't get missed. If a baby's eligible, then we make it happen. So, you know, before we started this project, we, we had, we had none of that. So, and I think that was really the biggest issue is we didn't really have a policy. We didn't really have guidance for the staff about who was eligible or who was not eligible. You know, obviously some nurses were invested in it very deeply, but some really were not because it is extra work to do it. And a lot of people were under the impression they needed a physician order to have the baby held or like verbal permission from the physician. And we all know that the doctors are, you know, we're not good at being consistent unless, unless forced. <laughs> so that was, I mean, there was just wild variation in what people were willing to do. Yeah. And because there wasn't really any sort of training or, or, or kind of, you know, checklists or anything like that, people were also really just uncomfortable with the sick babies. Like you talked about babies who are intubated, who have central lines, having lots of events. And so that's, you know, that's what we knew we needed to tackle to start getting people comfort more comfortable with it. So help us understand where you're at now and, and how you determine who is stable enough to hold and then how early do you hold? That's, that's, that's one of the things that I specifically wanted to explore because right now we've got a severe interventricular hemorrhage project with TIPQC and one of the things we're trying to, to do, we, we know skin to skin care is such an important, such a, a good thing to do with these babies. And, and personally, I think the benefits of it far outweigh any risk with some of the information out there that it's so important to keep the babies midline for pick your X number of hours that, 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 that study may, may suggest. 
how do we determine which which babies or how do you determine at your practice which babies are stable enough to pick up and hold and, and how are so we you know to, to kind of there there isn't really like a published you know these are the criteria that are safe so you you really any, any, anywhere, just so the audience is clear, yes. anywhere. <laughs> this is one of those things that we've got to determine as, as, as individual yeah. practices or amongst your PQC. So I yes. just want to make, make, yes. make sure that's so, clear. Yeah. So you quick. really have to like take a look inside, so to speak, and, and figure out what's going to work for you. So we, what I, what we did initially, what I did initially is I sent surveys out to all, you know, basically all the stakeholders. So the respiratory therapists, the bedside nurses, the nurse practitioners, the physicians, and for the bedside staff, I asked what, you know, what are you comfortable with and what are you not comfortable with? What makes this hard for you to do? What makes you nervous about it? What makes it challenging and what would make it easier? And then on the provider side, like the nurse practitioners and the physicians, I, I really made them put their money down with what they were comfortable with. You know, are you comfortable with this? Yes or no with this? You know, we talked about being intubated or not. We talked about the different types of central lines, like a peripheral art line, umbilical lines, PIC lines, FiO2 thresholds, nitric oxide, things like that. And so I got, you know, essentially in writing what people were willing to accept. And then we discussed that as our group. And that's how we came up with our eligibility criteria. So we do not have a gestational age lower limit. So any baby, no matter how preterm, may be eligible. They they can be intubated. They can be on the jet ventilator. We have not made a process for the oscillator yet. And I can talk more about the jet later, but they can have any type of central line. And if they're on less than 50% oxygen, not on multiple pressors, don't have a chest tube. Those are kind of the big, you know, kind of big picture acuity things. And they have, you know, enough skin integrity. We're talking about like 23, 24 weekers. Then they are eligible and we should try to make it happen. And so our group of doctors agreed to that. And so we wrote a policy with that agreement and we, we took us really out of the decision-making process, so to speak. And so I could tell my group, look, we agreed on this, so we're going to write a policy and nurses don't need to come to you and ask. They don't need you to put an order in. If the baby is eligible, then they can proceed with making it happen. If they have specific concerns, they can, of course, bring that to you and you can kind of talk through it. But you agreed that you were okay with this. We're going to do it. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, what a beautiful process. I mean, a beautiful use of QI to come up with a survey, build consensus amongst your team, establish a policy that, hey, this is what we agreed on. Let's do it. So I've got to pick some, ask you some other questions about that policy. Now, you said no gestational age limit at all. Is there an hour of life that you have to wait until they can do that skin-to-skin care? Or as soon as the baby has been deemed stable and meets that policy criteria? So and if you want to use an example of the 24-weeker or the 28-weeker on CPAP or the 24-weeker on the jet ventilator or, or whatever. Sure. No, there's good. not an hour of life limit. I will say it in those babies, like less than 27 or 26 weeks, it's usually at least 12 hours, if not 24 hours, just because it takes a little time for everything to kind of get settled and get, you know, you doing lines and you're doing, you know, you're figuring out your mode of 
ventilation and getting x-rays and all that stuff. So, but the 28 weaker who's stable on CPAP pretty much from the get go and maybe doesn't, and doesn't even have a central line in if that mom wants to hold it six hours of life, 12 hours of life, but that yep. may be stable. Y'all are yep. good with that. All right. That is, that is yeah, what I wanted yeah, to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I wanted everybody else to hear, cause I think that's so important and that just shows the the benefit of, of skin to scare. And skin I can comment on your, in this yeah, population. Your, your IVH question too, kind of related. To so, yeah. I want to, I want to hear about that. Cause that's, that's where we're going to get into the data here in uh, just a second. With yeah. So, so we actually in, in our babies less than 26 weeks, we do maintain 72 hours of midline head positioning and we do that with skin to skin. So, so they are held basically sideline on the parent's chest. We do a standing transfer if we can, but we can't, we have worked out standing and sitting transfers and they, they just go sideways instead of, you know, of chest to chest, the baby's facing, you know, to the right, for example, their whole head spine is, is facing the same direction and they're laying on the parent's chest that way. And then we either have like, we have kind of like a elastic tube top type of thing. And then we'd put a warm blanket over top just to kind of help keep them situated there. But they're able to still be skin to skin and maintain that midline head positioning for the first 72 hours. So that's how we maintain that. I will also say that we have not had, I mean, this is, you know, this is my personal experience. These babies have not gotten IVH. The babies that, that we have that get IVH are the babies that are, you know, sick as stink and end up being ineligible for other reasons and are at high risk for IVH for other reasons, right? Like, you know, the 23-weeker who didn't get steroids, who's on 80% oxygen and two pressors. So that that's the baby that gets IVH, and that's the baby that's not eligible to be held. And so I, I really have not in the last three years seen any sort of kind of concern or connection, at least myself, with holding. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And, and, and just for our audience, especially those of you in Tennessee that, that work in neonatal care, what she talked about with that sideways, sideways transfer, that's exactly what we showed at the workshop at the TIPQC annual conference back in March. And I believe Helen Nation has a podcast where she talked about that in more detail. So as this project gets rolled out in our level three NICUs around the state, that's going to be some important information for you to share with your team. So they can also do this, learn to do this, and then be able to help your parents start this very early skin-to-skin care that's so important for these for these babies. That's great. Well, uh, any other specific data that you want to share with us or, or results of what you've seen or maybe just like parent feedback? Uh, I bet your, your, your satisfaction surveys from your parents have maybe improved over these two eras yeah. as well. If you're giving everybody the opportunity to shoot rainbows yeah, from exactly. heart or whatever the, the phrase was used. Um, yeah. I mean, we get great feedback from parents. This is like, you know, this is like what they ask about when can I, when they first come. We, we've also actually started to incorporate it more into our antenatal consults to try to plant the seed early. Like, you know, this is an expectation. We want you to do this. Ask us as soon as you get down here, when can I hold my baby and advocate for it? And, uh, and we made materials that we give parents that we have in a couple languages too. That's like part of the admission packet to try to really like empower them too. 
to ask for this and and make it happen and and then related to that there is something that you know occasionally happens and you guys have probably experienced this too is that a parent's really nervous about it especially those tiny babies they're they're like i i'm afraid to touch this baby i don't want to hurt my baby they're so fragile they're so delicate and they're nervous and you know you it's it's kind of like a fine line you you really we want to respect that hesitation and that fear and we want to address it but we don't want to you know but but a lot of times it's coming from a place where they just don't know that we can do it safely and that we can keep their baby you know stable and protected and that there are so many benefits and we want them to do it and so we do every once in a while have a parent that's anxious and we we make an effort again it's like those nurse champions who really you know, they could just say, oh, okay, we'll try again in a day or two. But some of those great nurses are like, you know what, let me tell you why it's so important. And let me tell you how we're going to do it. And that I'm really comfortable with you doing it and really encouraging them to do it. And never has anyone ever regretted being, you know, encouraged to do it when they were initially anxious. It's, you know, it's like something that they're so, so, so glad they did. So as we begin to, to wrap this conversation up, and I've absolutely loved this, picking your brain on this, because you're, you're, you've got such wisdom in this with what you've done. And I want you to share some of that wisdom with our hospitals around the state, because I know this is going to be a change for, I think, just about everybody that's involved in this, this severe interventricular hemorrhage reduction project. What would you share with those hospitals about what you have learned I think specifically with how you've changed the culture in your NICU. And if your NICU was like probably a lot of NICUs, you probably had some nurses who's like, well, we've always done it like this. We've, we've never gotten the 24-weeker up while it's on the jet ventilator and done skin to skin with the mother after 24 weeks. What advice would you give to people? What lessons have you learned that you think could be applied to other hospitals? So find your early adopters or your nurse champions and like love them and let them shine, give them control to really run with it and, and be creative because those are the people that really spread the culture change for us. They drank the Kool-Aid early and they, you know, these people, when they have 10, 15 free minutes on their shift, they're walking out to somewhere else in the unit and asking another nurse, like, how can I help you do this? And that was infectious. And that kind of like positive support around it, I think, was really helpful in the beginning with people who maybe were not quite as excited about it. We we started really, you know, we started small, we, we picked, we started with babies who are not quite as sick as what we're doing now to kind of build confidence. So people could could do a little bit of a simpler transfer or a simpler baby before they dived into having to do a baby on the jet. So, you know, start small and then kind of spread as people buy into it and see that it works. And we did, we, I mean, we were relentless with our like resource kind of giving. We tried to provide people with, you know, we, we had Sims, we had we had like instructional videos, we had paper, you know, like laminated things people could have at the bedside to, you know, we had champions who could come and help if it was a really sick baby. So really trying to make it as easy as possible. And then the respiratory therapist too is a group that 
is heavily involved in this process, which may not necessarily be obvious when you're first getting started, but they are as hands-on as the bedside nurse, especially for a baby who's intubated or, you know, a fragile baby on CPAP. So making sure that they were a part of everything we created was also really, really important. And I think, you know, I, I, I alluded to this too. I think as automatic as you can make it right in QI, the more you, you take it out of of the person's individual decision-making kind of process, the better. Like we took it, we really took it out of the doctor's hands. And I love, I love all our doctors, but we're busy and we're doing, you know, we're, we're trying to do a lot of things at one time. And, and so making it more automatic worked really well for us. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of what QI tries to do too. If we can sort of make things automatic and get people on board and sort of standardize things. We, we easily, easily have a, have a win. So the better job we can do of that and bring consensus, I think the better outcomes will be for our patients. And it sounds like you have done an absolutely fantastic job. I know when I talk to Anoop, I'm so impressed with what your team at Sharp Mary Birch has done and all that your team has been involved in and all that you do. So absolutely fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing with this, this, this with us today. I absolutely already love this podcast and I'm going to make sure everybody listens to it, especially all the ones that are involved in the, the severe IVH reduction. But I've got to end with one of my all-time favorite questions to ask. And this is this has become traditional now. In the past two years, I've been doing these podcasts and I've absolutely enjoyed every answer I've gotten. And here it is. If somebody gives you a big billboard there in San Diego, that you can put any big message on like an inspiring quote, something about what we've just talked about right now, something you want people to know about what you do, caring for babies, something to inspire your community. It can be whatever you want it to be. What would it say? Okay. So I had it narrowed down to two. All right. I'm going to pick one, but I, I, this was hard. This was a hard question. Okay. I'll be quick. Okay. So the first is a quote from Joe Kemp, who many of you may know. He does a lot. He's done, done quality improvement for years and years. He's in Oregon, but he, you know, taught me not that long ago. And he has this quote that's QI is love. And like, yeah, it, it totally is. You know, I think we don't think of it that way every day, but that feeling when our team gets together and like works hard and knocks it out of the park and is doing something that improves our baby's outcomes, that like warm, fuzzy feeling, like that's, that's it. And, and so as funny and simple as that quote is, it like resonates with me so much. And I think about it all the time and our jobs are hard and, and I think this is one of the reasons that doing this type of work gives us satisfaction. So that's my first one. And then my second one is a quote by Shig, maybe saying this wrong, Shig, Shigeo Shingo, who was an engineer for a Toyota, who was kind of one of the founders of Lean. And so his quote is, improvement usually means doing something that we have never done before. And this I love because I, I am like, so interested in the culture change that needs to happen for successful quality improvement. And this really hits the nail on the head. We all want to do things better. Every single person who shows up to work wants to do things better. No one would, you know, deny that. But 
that means that you have to do something new and you have to step outside of your comfort zone. If you do the same thing you did every single day before, it's not going to get better. So getting people to realize that what they really, what they want is going to require doing something new and being okay with that, I think is like that bridge we all have to cross to really make effective change. Oh yeah. And embrace getting people to embrace change. I've learned yeah. this so hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and figuring out weight. Yeah. It's, it's it, and it, to me, it's the most yeah. fun part of QI in the most challenging thing. How do you, how can you make it easier and then get somebody to do something that's actually easier? That's also better. And that's the, that's the fun part. And it's the hard part. So Kat, man, I so appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing your wisdom with us about the skin to skin. I think this is going to be some really important information that we're going to definitely share around here in Tennessee. And uh, I am quite certain that there will be lots of other people that will be involved in this. And hopefully people will reach out to you and ask you questions. If you're okay, we will share your contact information. And, and yeah, and I, I, I personally will be contacting you to get some more information to share with our teams here in Tennessee too. So definitely appreciate you. And to our audience that listened today, thank you so very much for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.